0: Good evening, and welcome to the Ian Pratt Free Library Poe Room. You're going to have a treat tonight because you're with two of my favorite authors, long standing favorite authors. Um, on my immediate right is Marsha Talley, who will be in- introducing Deborah Crombie. Marsha Talley is from Annapolis, and she is former librarian and cancer survivor and the writer of the Hannah Ives series. She's also done some serial novels. She'll tell you about those, probably, in which she participates in contributing to a, to a novel as it goes through various stages. And she's done a lot of editing. She also edited the recent copy of uh, Homicidal Holidays, which is the Chesapeake Crimes Anthology. Uh, her recent book is called Tomorrow's Vengeance. And we have copies of that in the back. Um, Deborah Crombie, what can I say about Deborah Crombie? She's a best selling, really, truly best selling, even with this book, um, um, author of the um, Dun- Duncan Kincaid and Gemma Jones Scotland Yard Mysteries. And if there is any couple that have gone through more than her characters, I don't know who they are. But we followed them all, all the way through. And um, they take place, of course, in England. And Deborah spends some part of her year each year um, in research in England. Poor thing. And she resides in Texas. But the other thing that's really interesting is you learn so much about England. And each one of her books is a special feature. There's a wonderful map at the front of her hardback books And it tells about the location of the book um, And most of the time she spends in London But she gets out into the countryside And there's several that I really like There's one called The Finer End Which takes place in Glastonbury Around the, the um, monastery there And there's another one that, that takes the, the um, canals There's one set at, at the Henley Regatta So she spends time in in, uh, the countryside as well as in London, but I'll let her tell more about her book. The most recent one is called To Dwell in Darkness. And we have copies. I'm Kathy Herig with Mr. Company, in case you don't know, and I used to work at Pratt here in this very building. And uh, I have copies of the books in the back, or you can get them from my store in Oxford, Maryland.
1: Thank you, Kathy. Are we...
2: I think we're all wired for
0: sound
1: here. Are we all? Can you all hear us? Okay. Oh, good. Great. Am I on? I, oh. <laughs> just, let me just start out by hitting myself in the nose. Um, are we good? Are we good sound? Okay. You all have to excuse me. I am very croaky, so we'll hope I get through the night with a voice. Makes me sound really deep and mysterious. You sound like that's her Lauren Bacall voice. That's my Lauren Bacall. Well, it was better than squeaking, but uh, we'll do our best. I, well, I was going to introduce Marsha Talley, but Kathy beat beebe. Kathy beebe <laughs> me to it. Um, this is so much fun to be here in Baltimore area, and I'm getting to spend about four days with Marsha. Marsha and I have been friends for, we're still trying to figure out. Long a long time. A long time. We met at a malice A malice domestic. A malice domestic, and we think it was between. It was between nineteen ninety three and nineteen about nineteen ninety five. My first book came out in ninety three, and my first one came out in ninety nine. So
2: it was somewhere in between there. But I think well, it was. was,
1: We know it was before ninety seven. I think mm -hmm. it was like ninety five. We are mutual friends of uh, the writer Kate Charles. Some of you may know Mm -hmm. and I think we all sort of met at the same time Mm -hmm. didn't we Um, but one of the most fun things about this strange and crazy thing that we do writing novels is that um, we get to be friends with other writers and it's one of the most rewarding things about what is not always the most glamorous of
2: jobs I was uh, tickled because um, my husband and I just celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary and Debs wanted to come for the Celebration and uh, so, her publicist, who used to be my publicist, yes, kind of rigged her tour so that she could just happen to be in Annapolis this uh, yes, I happened to fly
1: in on Friday and be able to go to the 50th anniversary party, which was amazing on Saturday, and then a signing yesterday and today, and then the wonderful thing we're doing at the Robert Morris Inn on Wednesday. Yeah, if you happen to be over on Maryland's Eastern Shore, that it's going to be a lot of fun.
2: Um, you wonder, I guess you wonder with all this time on the road how you have time to write novels. And Debs has done 16 novels so far. I'm just a piker, I've only done 14.
1: Yeah, but you've done 14 in 14 years. I've done 16 in 21 years, which means that I am a slacker. <laughs> my, my goal always, actually, I did manage a book a year, the first few books, but they were shorter and um first book was only two hundred and roughly two hundred and seventy pages mm-hmm. in manuscript, I think, so it was seven it was less than eighty thousand words I think and do you think I'm, there's a trend
2: I, now toward making novels longer than they used to be?
1: I think so, um You know, I I don't even remember what my contractual obligation is, but it's probably, you know, at least Mm 100,000 words. And I've written them as long as 120,000, which was Water Like a Stone, the book that wouldn't die. (laughs) It just went on and on and on and on, and my editors kept saying, can't you cut something? Can't you cut one of the storylines? And I said, no, I can't, because it would have all unraveled. But um, I don't know that I will ever write... One should never say never, but a book quite that long again. But yeah, I think readers, I think readers expect more of crime novels than they used to. The only trouble um, is that
2: those books are really heavy,
1: and you know <laughs> if they
2: fall on your nose when you're sleeping, you can do damage. That's true. <laughs> um, one advantage of e-books, I guess, if you have a a, a 900 page novel, it's a lot lighter. Much easier much easier to read in bed. I still
1: like real books, I must say.
2: Debs and I were talking in the car on the way up, and, and one of the things that is always a challenge for those of us who write books in a long series is avoiding what I call the Cabot-Cove syndrome. Uh, you all probably watched... Uh, Murder, She Wrote, with Jessica, uh, Jessica Fletcher, uh, starring Angela Lansbury. I think it was 12 seasons, and it's still in syndication. And there can't be anybody left alive in Cabot Cove by, by this point.
0: Ooh, they're moving um, the
1: library.
2: <laughs> you know, everybody's either dead or they're in prison because they murdered somebody else. And uh, <laughs> Jessica Fletcher put them there. So... Um, I w- I'm wondering if you talk a little bit, Debs, about your characters and about how you keep a, your series fresh.
1: I had a, a... It's been very interesting. We were talking about this in the car, too, or earlier when we were sort of sitting back in the staff rooms in the library about... Marsha Marcia said, I've written 14 books. And I said, I've written 16 books. Um, and it seems... You would think that it would get easier or more imaginable that you are going to sit down and write a novel when you have nothing but blank pages, but somehow that hasn't happened. Um, But people do ask, you know, do you get tired of your series? Do you get tired of your characters? And that has not been the case for me. I think that does happen to some writers, and I think you can usually, as readers, see when that happens, but one of the things that has made it so much fun for me over you know sixteen, sixteen books um, is that they're multiple viewpoint. They're often multiple storylines. Some of the books are multiple timeline. But because I, I just I get to explore so many different characters and different settings, and I think that that helped keep it really fun and um, and fresh for me. I get to bring in new characters for every book and write from their viewpoints, which is always fun. And then with the series characters, it's this very slice of life and one of the interesting things which we haven't talked about about doing this series is having made the decision very early on when I had no idea if I could write a novel, if I could sell a novel, if I actually managed to write a novel. We all did mm-hmm. this, and if I could actually manage to sell a novel, could I sell more novels? Because right. I knew I wanted to write a series from the very beginning. Um, but I made uh, I made a, a very conscious decision in with that very first book that the series would not run in real time, um, which is which is an interesting concept. If you look at um, Sue Grafton, who mm-hmm. kept who kept the Kinsey books in. The set in the eighties, which would have driven me bonkers, I think, to have been stuck in the eighties. No cell phones. uh, No. No. (laughs) Well, I guess that does make things easier. Uh, (laughs) Maybe or not. (laughs) Um, And then you know Ian Rankin, who aged Rebus in real time, so he had to he had Mm -hmm. to uh, retire Rebus. But I decided at the very beginning to sort of do the PD James thing, which was to. You know that the series would not run in real time, and so even though there have been 16 books over 21 years, which just staggers me, only less than five years have passed in series time. So if you go back to those early books, you have to sort of ignore, you know, the car phone that's attached to the car, and the fact that the the police officers get faxes, and so yours, you've pretty much yours hasn 't run really in you know the characters have gotten older and the kids have yeah. gotten older but it 's but not in real time or well, the, the kids would be grown up my, and yeah,
2: my problem was that i didn 't know I was writing a series, so the I just wrote a novel um because there were a lot of people in my life who needed to die at that particular time. And <laughs> I thought, you know, that this was cheaper than a therapist. So I I wrote I say, the, the first one, Sing It I to them. Her Bones, and it won a contest. And that got the attention of a New York agent who was able to sell it and called me up with the good news and said, and you do have, they want a series, you do have ideas for two more, don't you? And I said, oh, Sure. Um, can I call you back in the morning? And then I, I called Debs, I called everybody I knew, and I said, help, I need ideas for two more. So I, I made Hannah too old to begin with. Um, she was married, and she had a grown daughter who was um, just out of college. And uh, so I've had to kind of fudge it a little bit. I don't, after all these books, I don't mention how old she is. She has grandchildren, and they sort of age a little bit. They're, a little bit, yeah. but
1: not in real time. But, you know, it's the
2: same thing that happened to Agatha Christie, who, uh, you know, Miss Marple, if she had aged, normally would have been 140 by the time the <laughs> series,
1: you know. Well, Adam Dalgleish in P.D. James novels in Cover Her Face, which, was, and I should know this because since I did an essay for John Connolly and Burke's, uh, Declan Burke's Books to Die For uh, on Cover Her Face, which mm-hmm. I had sort of seen as, you know, the the... The transition between golden age mysteries and the mm. modern police procedural—it was interesting to go back and read it after more than twenty years. I found it much more golden agey than I remembered. Um, but Dog Leash, because so, so that was published in sixty four. Does anybody anybody remember? It's probably about right. About right. right about yeah. sixty four. And we know that Dog Leash is a widower, and you know he and he's he's. You know definitely, at least in his thirties and not in his if not in his early forties mm-hmm. and then, in the last leash novel, at least as far as we know, um the private patient leash is going off to get married <laughs> when, you know if he had, if if she had aged him in real time, he would have been <laughs> doddering well past yeah. retirement so interesting interesting decisions that you make um and one of the other things that I felt strongly about was having characters that had real emotional lives and mm-hmm. aged and and not only aged but evolved and had relationships and uh which and that has certainly kept mm-hmm. novels fresh. Um, there were a couple of things that I felt really strongly about um as far as is is writing crime novels, and particularly writing crime novels in a series, and one of them was to um, that you had to play fair with the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big believer in that part of the traditional mystery canon that you know that the reader should know everything that the detective knows. Mm-hmm. Um, but we 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 started laughing yesterday. We were talking about. Um, was the, it, the Decalogue. Yes, Ronald Ron, Ron, Ron Knox and the, yeah, the, ten, rule, the ten Rules. <laughs> I can't remember
2: exactly when he published the Decalogue, but Ronald Knox was a clergyman in England, and he's buried in, in Mel's. Actually, I've, I've been photographed at his tombstone. But he had ten, ten rules um, for writing crime fiction, and I, off the top of my head, one one was that only... Only one secret passageway per novel is allowed. Um, no unprepared for,
1: unprepared for identical, identical twins. twins. I love that one. Josephine Tay got back with it because, she well, they weren't identical, but she did prepare us for the twins in yeah, yeah, Rat Fair. No, so she's yeah. one of my favorite all-time And
2: uh, the, the most curious one is No Chinaman. Uh <laughs> And I think by that he meant, you know, you can't have somebody come in at the end of the book, um, you know, like Dave's ex Mahina and having, you know, been <laughs> the killer all along that nobody's ever seen. So I, 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 I agree. I think you should play fair with the reader. I get very angry when people, when novelists uh, keep things from us.
0: Well,
1: I suppose you can get away with it in a thriller, maybe. But in a traditionally structured crime novel, I I, I think that's a rule that is probably best stuck to. Um, but having, having said that, that there are certain rules that, you know, I have felt it was important to adhere to. I have broken knowingly or mm-hmm. sometimes... We're unwitting, keeping track. Yes, we're gonna, and, yes. And yes we're keeping unwittingly. Track. I didn't know when I started out that my detectives would have um, a romantic relationship. I don't know that there was ever really a rule against that. But, tradi- but in most traditional detective novels, that doesn't. Because it interfered with the mystery. I mean, it was thought that those things interfered with the mystery. Uh, right, they,
2: they were distractive and, and particularly if if the heroine had a policeman... Right, you know, because that was just way too convenient. Right, and and, uh, and and the big rule that you broke though was what's called the the moonlighting. The, oh yes, yes syndrome. The, it, jumping the shark. Yeah, or <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the television show Moonlighting, which was uh, Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepherd. Shepherd, and once they got married. All the chemistry was gone, and the series was off. But you got so, around yeah, that. So yeah, that was a very just...
1: scary. That was a very scary thing to do. I um, first I had my characters get together, which I didn't really intend in the very beginning. And it's it's funny. I went back recently and reread the first book in the series, The Share and Death*, which I hadn't reread in a long time. Do mm-hmm. you re- reread your books sometimes? And I go, Well, oh, I do my if gosh. I'm lucky. Yeah, I do if I'm looking for yeah. something. But you know, just to actually sit down and and read one through from start to finish. And I thought, well, you can sort of see in that first book that Gemma fancies Duncan, although she would never admit it to anybody, especially, you know, to Mm -hmm. herself. And there's a little bit of hero worship in there because she hasn't worked for him, very, which goes away quite quickly, because she hasn't worked for him all that long. And, you know, he's her boss and superior officer. I think the library is closing. And... um, and Duncan in that first book flirts with every single woman in the book, except maybe the teenage girl. He does. He even he flirts with the elderly ladies. He really likes them. Um, so I think I think Duncan was Duncan was ready for a relationship. Gemma didn't think she was, um, but they do sort of run away with things in about the third book in the series. Mm-hmm. And um, and then you know we had in, in which was a very hard thing for Gemma. And I love the end of that book, *Leave the Grave Green*, where you know the book ends, and Duncan, you know, they've done what they didn't intend to do and slept together, and. And Duncan wakes up and think it's just the greatest thing that ever happened. And then the last scene in the book is Gemma driving home thinking, oh, my God, what have, have I, I done? done? Yeah. I've ruined my life. I've ruined my career. I don't want to go to work. I never want to look him in the face again. I just, you know, I, she, I think she felt very strongly that it, it damaged her credibility as, mm-hmm. in the job. Um, so it was a tough thing. And this goes on for a couple of books. But I felt like... You know, people in real life either make a decision to go on with a relationship or they dump it and go do something else. Um, and so, you know, I made that decision and having put them together personally, um, I had to separate them professionally. I felt that I had to separate them professionally, which has been interesting. That's been another thing that's provided lots of opportunities for stories. Um, have have but, you
2: kind of alternated? Books? Yeah, I have um, kind one is of
1: Gemma's book yeah. and one is
2: Duncan's book.
1: I haven't stuck to it religiously, but pretty much. Um, and I do sort of think about that beforehand. You know, that Gemma's had the major case. Maybe Duncan should have the major case in the mm-hmm. next one. But um, but then I decided, you know, we can't we can't just kind of go on in this limbo forever. And I made the decision several books back that. Uh, that they would actually decide to get married. And I had people tell me that, oh, you know, nobody will read your books anymore if they get married. Um, but I thought it would be very interesting to write about a couple who are not a dysfunctional right. couple. They have their issues. But, um, and with a blended family who are both working police officers and are trying to deal with the demands of family life and kids and the job. And um, it's turned out to be great fun for me. You know, I kind of can't wait to see with every book what's happening, what's going to happen next. Well, the new book,
2: which um, I've read and really, really liked, "To Dwell in Darkness." It starts with an explosion in St. Pancras Station in in London, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about it. I
1: mean, everybody's anxious to get it, I'm sure. Yeah. So, uh, well, the previous book. Uh, that is interesting. I usually have cover consultation on these things, um, but this one I just got an email, and it was when the book was barely even started, so they were really, my publisher was really jumping the gun. And, you know, I have to forewarn you that there is absolutely nothing about the London Eye in this book. Uh, it made a pretty cool cover, but, you know, maybe I should put the London Eye in the next book. I don't know. Um, I'm having a little bit of a love affair with Victorian architecture here because The Sound of Broken Glass, the previous book, part of it revolves around the Crystal Palace or at least the remains of the Crystal Palace in South London, which was built in... uh, The original Crystal Palace was built in Hyde Park in 1851 for the Great Exhibition and then it was taken down and it was rebuilt on Sudbury... No, Sydenham Hill, sorry. Um, And, you know, twice as big and, and even more... Grand and um, St. Pancras Station was built in 1856. Actually, one of the the architect for the train shed uh, was actually one of the consulting architects for the Crystal Palace. Mm-hmm. So it just fabulous, fabulous Victorian structure. And you know, the train shed when it was built was the largest single span train shed in the world. It's it is no longer the largest, but I think it is probably still the most spectacular. Mm-hmm. Train shed in the world, and there were two different architects one for the, for the train shed and one for the hotel. But I had just fallen in love with this, and I really, you know. And if you, you find a setting for a book, then you have to come up with a story to fit the setting. Um, so, and then what happens at the end of Sound of Broken Glass, if you've read that, how many, and I should, we should do a little poll, and how many of you have read books in the series? Yes? So we have a few of you who have... Some people have work to do. Yes, who have not read any of the books in the series. Well, let me tell you, you can start with this one. (laughs) Um, So at the end of the previous... So I'm not giving you spoilers that you won't read on the dust jacket, but um, at the end of the previous book, Duncan has been on family leave. They have now... Duncan and Gemma are married. They have... uh, a fourteen-year-old son, kid who is Duncan's from his first marriage, and uh, Toby, who is Gemma's, who's almost seven, who, who is Gemma's son from her first marriage, and they have a foster three-year-old, three and a half-year-old in this book, foster da- daughter named Charlotte, and uh, so they've taken turns on family leave. Gemma was on family leave, and then Duncan has been on family leave. Uh, trying to get Charlotte settled and, you know, adjusted in school and child, you know, care arrangements. And so he goes back to work and he walks into his office that he's been in in Scotland Yard for what, you know, we will assume is at least a dozen years. And he walks in and his office has been cleared out and there are transfer papers on his desk. And that, is all we know, and um, so this book picks up, we find out where Duncan has been transferred, which is uh, a murder investigation team in the borough of Camden, which works out of Holborn Police Station, and that takes in um, Covent Garden, Bloomsbury, St. Pancras, King's Cross, um, uh, the bottom of Regent's Park, the bottom of Hampstead, it's just uh, the ends of court, Just this fabulous, very central and historic Mm -hmm. part of London. But part of what I was doing was putting Duncan where something that happened in King's Cross Station would be on his patch. Um, And so what happens is that there is a protest, and one of the protesters sets off what is supposedly a smoke bomb. It turns out to be a white phosphorus grenade um, in he he is killed, and um, other some other people are injured, and we don't know whether it's accident, suicide, no. terrorist act, or murder. Mm-hmm. We can probably safely assume it's murder since it yeah. does get to be <laughs> Duncan's case. But
2: no, that's, um, I I loved it, and I and I wondered when you were when I was reading it how you did the research for those kinds of devices and what made you choose that particular one rather than another one or
1: I I think you know it's really and I've always told my I always tell myself that I'm going to keep a novel journal which is you know where you sort of write down the evolution of ideas for a novel because they do just sort of come together in you know bits and Mm -hmm. in pieces um very seldom do they, you know, do you get a whole book? and You wake up in the middle of the night, there it is, the whole novel. <laughs> yeah, it happened to me once, once. <laughs> um, but most of the time it's an idea here and an idea there, and you sort of stick them together and see what happens. And I had read um, a story in Rolling Stone magazine about a British undercover cop named Mark Kennedy who had worked by infiltrating um, what the the British Home Office referred to as homegrown terrorist groups. This was – this particular – actually, this – the undercover police operation in the U.K. actually goes back to the 1960s. But there was a big initiative before 9-11 to put undercover operatives into um, eco-protest groups, animal rights activists, these sorts of groups – and uh with almost no oversight um, very shady, very shady dealing and uh there was a cop named Mark Kennedy who had worked and and they sent these cops undercover for long, sometimes three, four, five years. Um, they were not supposed to have relationships w- with the group that they were infiltrating. almost all of them did, and often had children. Uh, which some of them just abandoned when their assignment was over. Um, But, uh, you know, these things almost always happened, and it happened to Mark Kennedy. He had a girl, he was married with children, but he had a girlfriend in the protest group. And what he would normally do is he he would report every day to his handler, and he would report when the group was going to do some kind of a protest. And normally what would happen is the police would turn up and you know, they would things would be disbanded as peacefully as possible. But he had reported to his superiors that the group was going to stage a protest. And I think it was in a nuclear power plant. I'd have to go back and reread the article. And they came with riot gear, beat people just half to death, arrested them, arrested Mark Kennedy, whose undercover name was Mark Stone, uh, and then he went to trial, and he was outed as an undercover cop during the trial, which means he, his career in the Metropolitan Police was ruined. His All his connections with the group that he had come to feel were his closest friends, and really his family were severed. They wouldn't have anything to do mm-hmm. with him. His marriage broke up. He you know, lost his wife and his kids, and it was just... And, Which And it's a terrible story, but I was just absolutely fascinated by it. So so I was looking at, you know, protest groups and what could happen and why these things could happen. And I was talking to my husband, who is uh, an ex-cop, and I said, so, you know, if you had something that you thought was a smoke bomb, could you disguise it as something more dangerous or deadly and he said yeah sure you <laughs> just you know and he said this is what the canisters look like he pulled them up on the internet and he said in the and if you have a white phosphorus grenade they have wp stenciled on the canister and he said all you'd have to do would be to paint it over and stencil smoke on the canister so run with it <laughs> that's a tip <laughs> <laughs> that's a tip um, wow I'm thinking about
2: research in particular and um, some of the adventures I've had in research, which to me, I mean, I could spend a whole, I could do research forever and never. Oh, sit I could down too. And, it's and dangerous. Book, it is, so, yeah, it's so dangerous. Much
1: fun you have to you have to you have to tell your story and then because we were talking about this book in particular and you know how you find out all these things and you you can actually you can find out a lot about the metropolitan police just by looking online and going to the met website you know, rank, structure, how things, you know, which divisions handle what. For instance, in this book, SO15, which is counterterrorism, is called um, into this case. And But there are all kinds of things out there you can read. But I, I've said, you know, with this book that I hope nobody was tracking my Google history, no. <laughs> because in which case I would have men in dark suits and uh, from Homeland Security mm-hmm. showing up at my door and, and um, marching me off, but Marcia has an even better. Are
2: you want the one about the
1: St. George's? The, yeah, yeah the St. I was. Uh,
2: I was writing. A, I think it was my sixth book, and um, there's a church in Alex in um, our Fall Church, Falls Church, called St. George's Episcopal Church, and there was something um, I couldn't remember about it. I uh, so I called Donna, the author Donna Andrews. Who I knew lived in the area, and I asked her if, you know, if next time you go by, could you check this out for me? So she said, Oh, that's no problem. I'm going to be going there this weekend with some friends, so I'll just take a couple of pictures. Well, this was very shortly after 9 11, and um, Donna called me on the Sunday morning. She said, You almost got me arrested. And I said, What? And she had been, she went dutifully to St. George's taking pictures. And she had been taking pictures for maybe five minutes when three cop cars came up with the lights flashing. And they climbed out of the cars, leaving the doors open, and seized her camera. And apparently nobody knew that this unobtrusive building behind St. George's Church is DARPA, which is a defense um, computer center. It's very clandestine. It looks just like an office building. Um so she had to promise that she. They watched while she deleted all of those pictures. Which, uh, and Donna said, you know, the best way for the terrorists to find out where the b- bad buildings are is just dress people as tourists, have them go all around Washington taking pictures, and when the cop cars show up, put an X put on. A pex on that building. You know, but you can see it. You can see. You can do a street search on Google, and there it is. But yeah. Donna said, would you have? If I had gone to jail, would you have bailed me out? I said, only if they take visa. <laughs> but uh, you know, tell about some of the. I, I, you told me once that you had a favorite research story. So can you tell that?
1: Yes. Every, everybody's sort of panning themselves out there. So I won't. I, I I won't be insulted if you fall over. Take off your clothes. Uh, yes. Yeah, so <laughs> take off. Take off <laughs> your clothes. Um, Oh, well, it's, and as Kathy said earlier, I've gotten to do so many fun things. I've set a book in Glastonbury. I've set a book in Scotland. I've, you know. I've got a good research story about Glastonbury, too, but you tell yours first. Uh, That's your story. But, well, you can tell my story. Um <laughs> But I think my I I think the most fun I've ever had doing research for these novels is in uh, No Mark No Mark Upon Her, which is two books back, and it's the book that's set in Henley. I decided for some you know crazy reason that because I this is usually the way books happen. I get this crazy idea like setting off a white phosphorus grenade in St Pancras Station, and then halfway through the book, I think, oh my god, why did I think I could pull this off? Um, But I decided I wanted to write a book with the setting of competitive rowing. And I knew absolutely nothing about competitive rowing. There is a rowing club in Dallas, but, you know, I don't think they're going to win any international (laughs) championships. And so I was talking to a friend in London about, um, I think I want to write about rowing. And he said, Oh, well, then you need to go to Leander Club, which is in Henley, and it is the most famous rowing club in the world. This is where Team GB trains, uh, it's for the this setting for the Henley, very famous Henley Regatta. Um, and he said, oh, oh, I, I have a, a friend, a, a mate, who's now the president of Leander Club. Let me make a phone call. So I got an invitation to go and stay at Leander Club. And you actually can stay at Leander. You don't have to know somebody special. You know, they have rooms that well, – they have 12 rooms, I think, that they – you know, you can rent as a guest – um, so I went to Leander Club and I got to tour the club it was actually nice to have an introduction to the president because I got to meet the coaches I got to meet rowers I got to tour the club and see the you know the crew quarters and the crew dining room and the you know the the boathouse and the crew gym and all this kind of stuff and you know and the and, and I think my first introduction to real rowers I'm five foot two. I went oh.
0: <laughs> hi
1: because <laughs> they are. Very, very tall. and But one of the things I did on this trip was I made friends with some of the staff, which there are two in-house managers who live on the premises. And so I, when I went back to Leander the second time, Uh, I was going to have dinner with my friend Carrie who's one of the house managers and she had been on duty that night so this was like 9 o'clock and she was cashing, you know, the dining room had closed and she was cashing out the bar so I'm sitting at the bar drinking a glass of white wine waiting for Carrie to finish up her paperwork and everything. And this guy kind of sticks his head around the corner. And, you know, I just register. He's very tall. He's very good looking. And he says, hi, Carrie. You know, I just came to get my mail. And she said, oh, oh, come in and meet my friend. You know, this is Deborah Crombie. She writes these, you know, great British crime novels because Carrie is a big reader and she loves the books. And she said, she said, and Debs is going to kill a rower, (laughs) a a female, you know, a female single scholar Debs is going to kill a female scholar. Um, on the tents, And he came in, he said, really? What happens? <laughs> and, you know, two hours later, we were still sitting there talking, and he came come up with all these just really vicious ideas for how you would knock off a female single sculler, and what time of day it was, and, you know, how you would turn the boat over, and, you know, and drown the sculler, and, and, um, you know, and why you would do it and all this kind of stuff. And he's asking me all these questions about my character's background. You know, how old is, is she? Because she's actually, she is a fairly senior female metropolitan police officer who was, um, you know, an Olympic hopeful when she was ten, twelve years younger, and has now decided that she wants to try to make a comeback, and we know it's for the twenty twelve Olympics. I never say it's for the twenty twelve Olympics, but you can sort of gather that. And so we're, we talked like two hours, and it was so interesting, and it was Are so
2: bright like this. What? Not.
1: No, but it was. And I'm, but I'm trying to remember everything. It was so much fun. And then, um, you know, and then we start to all say goodnight. And I said, and I was not fishing. I swear I was not fishing because I am the most unathletic person in the world. And I said, I wish I knew what it felt like to row because by this time I had read all these memoirs and, you know, books about competitive rowing. I knew everything practically there was to know about the Oxford-Cambridge boat race. And, And this guy said, well, I'll take you out if you want, and I kind of went, oh, uh, okay, <laughs> and that would be great, and and he said, I'd like to take you out the time of day that you're going to set the scene so that you can really, which is late afternoon, and he said, so you can really see what it's like, And so, you know, we exchanged phone numbers and made arrangements and said goodnight. And then my friend Carrie literally came over to me and shook me by the shoulders and said, do you know who that was? And I said, no, but he's very nice. And she said, that's Stevie Williams. He's the captain of Leander, and he's a two-time Olympic gold medalist in the Coxless Four. And I said, basically, oh, shit. <laughs> what have I done? What have I done? And then Carrie takes me around, and she shows me all over the clubhouse the, the Olympic oars, because when members of Leander win an Olympic medal, their oars go up on the wall, and their photos of Stevie with his Olympic gold medals. And I'm just thinking, oh, my gosh. I am going to make the biggest fool of myself imaginable, uh, and I'm going to fall in and drown. You know, I've never been in a skull. I can't. The only thing I've ever done is paddled a canoe. For heaven's sakes, and then if you've even watched the rowers get into the skull from the sort of floating platforms that they use, you think, how do they get in the boats without falling in and drowning? And I don't think I have ever, I mean, I was just sick. I was so nervous. And but having committed myself to it, I thought, oh, okay, you know, I cannot pass this up. And I did indeed show up at the appointed time sort of half thinking, oh, I hope he doesn't come. I hope he doesn't come. But he did. And sure enough, you know, and I had gone and bought some like sweatpants, something suitable to go in a skull. And he said, you know, take your shoes off and do this and I climbed in the boat, I didn't drown, and so we went out on the Thames in a double skull for about two hours. And if you can't row, if you're in a if you're in a double skull with a and does everybody know that skulls have two oars and mm-hmm. um if you were in a double skull with somebody who rows and somebody who can't row, you cannot both try to row at the same time or you will drown. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he taught me how to stabilize the boat while he would stroke and then he would stabilize the boat and let me stroke. And every so often, you know, he would stop and he would say, I just want you to look and listen and, you know, see what it looks like, see what it sounds like. And, and, It was the most fabulous experience. I learned that when you come around Temple Island and you go back upriver into the wind, it gets exponentially harder Mm -hmm. to row. And I actually got, I mean, horribly ugly, I'm sure, but, but by the end of the two hours, I actually got coordinated enough that I could get a sense of what it felt like to move the boat as a rower which was just amazing and by the time we finally got back to Leander it was completely dark. My friend Carrie thought we had drowned. You know, She was just in a real panic. She'd been kind of walking up and down the towpath in the dark and then so we get out. I don't fall in. Again, we put the boat up. You know, You put it up on the rack and then Stevie turns to me and he says... You know, I just realized I never thought to tell you what to do if we fell in, <laughs> which is you don't leave the boat. No. Uh, well, I knew that. I knew that. But because um, the current is very strong. Were and you very wearing fast. a life preserver? No, no, you can't row in a life preserver. Oh my goodness. No, because you know, you come up, you, you don't have arm movement. But so if you read the first scene in that book, No Mark upon her. Um, which I highly recommend because there's a storyline that starts in that book mm-hmm. that continues on into this one. Uh, but if you read that first scene in No Mark Upon Her, that, and if you feel like you are really on the Thames rowing with Becca Meredith, it is all down to Stevie Williams because he was just absolutely brilliant. But um, I think that's about as much physical <laughs> research as... I would like to do. So tell... tell Wait, oh,
2: oh about, about Glastonbury? Yes. Well, Debs and I had gone to a little B&B outside of um, Bath, as they say over yes. there, um, because she was researching a, her book that's set in Glastonbury, and uh, we were sitting around the breakfast table talking about it, and uh, there was a there were other people... Oh. And there were other people having breakfast, and we were saying, "Well, you know, I I'm not sure we want to." So tell if you, her. yeah, if you if you hit somebody on a bicycle with right. a car, right now, you and- know, maybe she could just run into the fence. But do you really want her to die? <laughs> and we we were going on and on about this, and I I noticed out of the corner of my eye this German couple get up and and gather their children together and quietly leave the room, and. We heard conversation in the hallway The, the uh, proprietress And she spoke German And eventually they, the German couple crept back in Because they, she, they had been informed That we were just mystery novelists That we weren't actually, we were actually planning to bump anybody off And then the next day The proprietor, who's a, a wine expert um, They were planning to give us dinner So they, they brought out three bottles of wine And put them on the breakfast table so we, for us to choose, which wine did we want for dinner? And the French couple thought that here are these three, well, there was another, uh, Kate Charles was there too, thought that perhaps these three American writers had a bottle each of wine for breakfast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> before so we went off bumping people off on bicycles. <laughs>
2: well, before we um, open it up to questions, I did want to ask you, you mentioned the that there's the, the overarching, there's a theme and a right. storyline that goes beyond each book and I was wondering um, where you plan to go after this one Uh, you have some loose ends and do you have any idea about what's going to happen with Duncan and Gemma in the next book
1: Um, I do actually I'm not I have not yet figured out how I'm going to put all the pieces together and I which is one of the things that we do we do what we call plot festing and I don't know you know maybe there are other writers who write in a vacuum um but, you know, we have been lucky to, you know, be friends for a long time and be able to talk about ideas for books and where they might go, and, and, um, which is very helpful. So I'm hoping that we can both do some plot festing. We have two more days, and yes, we have a drive to Oxford. Yes, in the next couple of days. Um, I do think that the major case in the next book will be Gemma's. Uh, and that it has to do with um I stayed when I was in London in May in a portered flat, which is a flat you know where you you go in the main door and you have a concierge and then you you know you go upstairs or usually if it's a portered flat, you have a lift um and it it overlooked um it was in Holland Park and it overlooked um a communal garden you know everybody see Notting Hill where uh they climb over the fence into the you can't really do that you cannot you cannot get into these gardens um and this one actually had not a gate but a door beside the building and it was like you know it was like the door to the secret garden and i started thinking well i didn't have a key i'm staying in one of these flats but i don't have a key and um you know i wonder how many people do have keys and if you could get into the garden if you don't have keys and so I, you know, and that presented itself as a kind of a limited, a body. Yes, limited number of suspects. So, I so I think there is a body found in a communal, a fictional communal garden um, in the Notting Hill area, and that is. Uh, is, and Gemma will be brought into the case by their friend Mackenzie Williams, mm. and, um, and then Duncan's storyline will be going on at the same time, but I mean, this is what we deal with in every book, is how do you put, it's not so much not knowing what's going to happen, but how do you put all the pieces together, mm. and um, knock wood, hope they make sense, Right, because if they don't make sense, a reader will let you know.
2: That's right. <laughs> I, I uh, one short story, and you can chime in. Deborah once got a an email from, or a letter actually, from an American reader who was a professor in New York, and sh- for the book that um, Dreaming of the Bones, which is sent, set partially in Granchester, which is outside Cambridge, yeah, and uh, this woman wrote, you know, I. I I read your book, I I went to the tea room I turned right, I turned left I walked down the street, I walked down that street But the big oak tree It's on the left, it's not on the right Please explain And I I don't know, what did you just write back and say
1: It's fiction (laughs) Yeah, pretty pretty much Maybe the tree moved I don't know Or they Um, cut it
2: down
0: Yeah So, um, questions? Questions. If you have a question, there's actually a microphone behind you, so if you can speak into the microphone. Don't make us call on you. No.
1: Thank you, Christopher. (laughs) I'm wondering about the titles, Deb. You have some of the best titles in the industry, and what process do you have for coming up with them, and when in the process do they happen? Oh, thank you. Um, I'm a title-first writer. Um, I really, it helps me sort of... Sort of sets the book, it kind of helps form the book for me. So, I and sometimes they I get them really quickly, and sometimes I really struggle to find them. Um, they are they make they always make sense to me, and Crombie titles have have a certain um, <coughs> sorry, I don't know, they just have a certain sound and feel to them, and I can't really explain what that is. Sometimes they're quotes. Sometimes they're slightly modified versions of quotes, sometimes they are things that I just made up. Uh this is per, this one in particular is from a psalm. I can't remember which psalm it is. Um, um and I, I have a Marcia gave me a title friends come in very yeah. handy for yeah. that which is yeah. and justice there is none, yeah. which was one of my favorite. I know I had a big debate with myself on whether I could actually go to a five-word title for that one But, but it worked. But it worked. And um and then we've, we've gone on from there. And I think the title for the next book, I've run this by my editor, but I have not put it in print anywhere, is um, The Clean Bones Gone, which is a quote from Dylan Thomas's uh, And Death Shall Have No Dominion. So we'll see. I like it. Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am. Oh, we got... Oh, I, w- I. How did I basically? How did a nice girl from Texas start writing British crime novels? Um, I've been an I was an Anglophile from a small child. I have no English or British connections whatsoever that I know of. No family, no ancestors, nothing. I just loved everything English, and um, I didn't go to England for the first time until I graduated from college, and my parents took me. Um, you know, we did, like, the grand tour, but we started with a week in England. And I just felt the most intense, inexplicable sense of homecoming. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's never gone away. I still feel that way. Um, we did we did Bath, Glastonbury, Oxford. I really wanted to be an inkling when I grew up. If any of you know who the inklings were, C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, poet Charles Williams, and... They met in a pub in Oxford called uh, the Eagle and Child, or known as the Bird and Baby, and every week, and you know, drank pints and talked about their work in progress. Um, So I went to England on this trip, and I just absolutely was so smitten. And I went back, and I was trying to figure out how I could go back. I moved home. which I'm sure my parents were thrilled with. <laughs> because I worked in a family business and basically just saved all my money for about nine months. And then I went back and I bought a bus pass and I traveled all over England and Scotland by myself until my money ran out, which was about six weeks, I think. And, oh, boy, this would have been 76-ish, 76. And B&Bs in Britain were interesting,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. coin-fed heaters, hot water only turned on twice a day, (laughs) nylon sheets. uh, But I just loved it. I just absolutely loved it. And I went, you know, all southern England and Devon, Cornwall, up to the Lake District, Yorkshire, across the Scottish borders, Edinburgh up to Inverness. I just absolutely loved it. And I went home and I thought, well, now what do I do? Because, you know, jobs for Americans in Britain were not really on offer. And uh, as fate would have it, a couple of months after that, I met, and I was actually applying for a job as a sales rep for Texas Christian University Press, And uh, I met my Scottish ex-husband in Dallas. Um, He was an engineer who worked for a company in Edinburgh Edinburgh called Ferrandi. Uh, They made radar for Phantom Jets. And they had sent him, along with ten other Scottish engineers, to a a six-week seminar at Texas Instruments. And so I met him, and I knew him for a whole less than six weeks. And he went back to Scotland, and we communicated, and... um, After a couple of months, he asked me to come to Scotland and marry him, and I was crazy enough to do it. I was 26 years old, and um, you know, I sort of, it was certifiably insane, actually. (laughs) Um, I don't regret it, but uh, it was a crazy thing to do, but I, I, I did. I gave up all my stuff my cat, my car. And uh, moved to Scotland, got married. We lived in Edinburgh, and then he got transferred to RAF Sealand, which is outside Chester, in England, and uh, and we lived there. But this this was hard times. This was about 1981. By that time, we were married in '79, and um, I you know I and I couldn't get a work permit, even though I was married to a British citizen. I mean, you know, the British couldn't get jobs, and they certainly weren't giving them away to Americans. And it was just really financially hard. This was you know sort of the height of Thatcher austerity in the UK. And I discovered that my Scottish husband's idea of the perfect, ideal life was not to live in England or Scotland, but to live in Texas with a patio and a barbecue grill. Yeah. And um, he now lives in Ohio, and I think that serves him right. <laughs> um, so we, we went back to Texas and made a life and had a lovely daughter, and, but I was so homesick for England. And um, we went on holidays several years later, and we were in Yorkshire and up north of Thirsk, which is in the Scottish Moors, and um, and we're driving on a little B road, and, um, and I saw this Georgian house set back from the roadside, and it was a timeshare. And I said, can we go and look at that? And I was just, we couldn't afford a timeshare, but I was just interested. And that was the germ of the idea for the very first book. And I went home and, you know, argued with myself for months and thought, you know, can I can i try to write a novel and then why not you know all all i can do is fail <laughs> uh i didn't tell anybody um but I, I did and i i wrote you know i wrote that first novel and um against all odds many odds um sold it and sold it as part of a multi-book contract and have been writing under contract ever since um So I was married to my Scottish ex-husband for 13 years, and you absorb a lot of cultural, you know, not only language patterns, but cultural background, and um, had spent, you know, considerable time in the U.K., although not except for when we actually lived there, not as much as I spend now, because it's usually a couple of months out of the year. It's funny that... uh I didn't know London well at all when I started the first books in these series, this series. And now, um, you know, I have an ongoing love affair with London. So, um, I, you know, I, I, I keep waiting one of these days for somebody to come and, and um, tell me I can't do this. <laughs> but fortunately, um, people seem to really like the books and I get to keep writing them. So, now,
2: Are they destined for the, the big screen or the little screen? Anytime oh, soon? well, we
1: certainly hope they are destined for the small screen. I mean, I think that is, if you write British crime novels, you know, of course you would love to see them done on Masterpiece Mystery or BBC America or one of those things. And, you know, it's been something that has been talked about for a long time. There have been a couple of options um, which haven't really come to anything, and, uh, but there is a really good one now that I, I hope pans out because the producers are wonderful. The, the, the team is wonderful. Producers, screenwriter, uh, senior script editor, um, casting done by Jill Trellick, who's casting director for Downton Abbey and um and the and financed by uh, Fremantle Entertainment which is a huge international distribution television Oh, they own American Idol, which certainly should help pay for some more um, cultured, some more sophisticated (laughs) sophisticated entertainment, yes. Yes. Um, But what we have to do is actually sell the series to a British broadcaster, which would be BBC or ITV or possibly Sky. The landscape Mm -hmm. of how these things are financed and produced is kind of changing. So, um, you know. I I think if it happens It would be great fun It won't be We've had a lot of brainstorming talks about how we would do this how we would get into the series what book we we would start with which I think we've pretty much all agreed would be leave the grave green which mm-hmm. is the third book in the series and you know where you come into Duncan and Gemma's relationship and what you do about their jobs and kids and but there's nothing else like it I mean there's there is no other mm-hmm. you know television series police drama where the detectives are a married couple and um, and that, you know, that has the domestic thread, even though the books, the books are not cozy in the sense that, you know, I, um, the murder is always taken very seriously. And I try to be as realistic as possible with the police procedure and the investigation. I mean, you, you know, you, you always have to condense these things for novels because, you know, in a big case like this, you'd have 50 detectives probably, and you can't do that in a book. Um, But there is this domestic thread that runs through the books, which is also something that, you know, is not being done by anybody Mm -hmm. else. And, you know, we all think it would just make absolutely, as Tim, who is the senior script editor, says, smashing television. (laughs) So, fingers crossed.
2: Any idea who would play Duncan or who would play... Gemma?
1: I, when I got I to ask. Yes, know. <laughs> I know. When I when I got this sort of fantasy cast list that was drawn up by Jill Trellick, who happens to have been best friends at school with Cheryl Crown, who's the producer, one of the producers, I kind of went, oh my gosh. She's had people like Damien Lewis and Richard Armitage, and I mean, you know, really big name. Um, and I thought, really? Um you know it's very hard for me to see an actor as my characters and i think what i would really like to see is is actors for both duncan and gemma who are not really identified with other characters and and you know and what they are, they're look team uk is is you know we call the me and the production team what we're looking for is actors who would be willing to commit to a long run And, you know, in a a format that would be done like probably Lewis would be the most likely thing Mm -hmm. with four hour and a half episodes a season. And, you know, you would want somebody that would commit to doing many seasons, hopefully. Oh, yes. And uh, I would say, and they've got 16 books to start with (laughs) without me writing any more. Um, so the, when I was in London in May, we had an all-day brainstorming meeting with the with the Tim and Cheryl and her partner Linda, and um, the actor that they were liking best for Duncan, who was not on the list, does anybody watch New Tricks? Yes. Oh, yes. Um, you know who Alan Armstrong is? Who plays yeah. Brian? Who's so wonderful? Well, Alan Armstrong has a son named Joe Armstrong. And he's just the right age. He's not really traditionally good looking, but he, and he actually looks like Alan with hair, except younger and better looking. (laughs) Um, But he's just fabulous. I mean, he's one of those actors when you see him on the screen, you can't stop watching him. He's so good and just, and really interesting. And I think that's what they would like too is to get somebody, and Joe is in his late 30s. And, you know, somebody who's just sort of poised to, to, you know, make a break into a starring series role. And um, so, I don't know. We'll see. It would just be, it would be huge fun. And my agent, who is absolutely brilliant and spent months working on the contract with Fremantle, um, because she said it was the most complicated contract she had ever seen. Um, But she worked into it so that if they fly me over, for consultations, they have to fly me business class. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> is that good or what?
2: <laughs> and I think you mentioned that um, somebody had floated the idea of um, uh, Honeysuckle Weeks' sister. Oh, I, actually,
1: it was me. Uh, Honeysuckle Weeks. Well, how brilliant, yes. W- yes. yes. <laughs> um, I, everybody, you all probably Watch know Foil. who Honeysuckle Weeks is if you've watched uh, Foyle's War. She has a younger sister named Perdita, and, um, and I've liked her for years. She's very middle class. She would have to be able to play working class, but I, you know. She could play um, down. She could play down. <laughs> I think she could play down. Um, and uh, and when I first started, I just saw her in something, and I thought, oh, my God, she's fabulous. And she, has, she just has that, Gemma should be very accessible, um, I think, and have that that warmth to her character, and I think she does. Uh, you, if you if you look her up, if you see her, you'll recognize her. Not only because she looks like Honeysuckle, but you'll recognize her. You've seen her in other things. She played Lydia in Pride and Prejudice. She was in the other Bolin girl, mm-hmm. I think, and and you know you you will have seen her. Um, and she, but she was young and she was too young to play Gemma and now she's she's getting close to 30 so you know because this, this idea has been floating around for a long time so who knows I have I have added her to the cast the, the fantasy cast okay. list so we'll mm-hmm. see well it's closer than it's
2: ever, ever been I think
1: yes it's yeah. definitely closer I mean this is actually an option with money attached mm-hmm. so not a lot of money but it, it, it means at least that somebody is serious enough yeah. to write checks so exactly
2: we like that yes
1: we like that
2: are there any other questions before we um, sign books oh there's one over there
0: um, I you talked about having all the different parts that need to be put together for the story and my question is what do you where is are all those parts, are they in your head? Do you have a zillion Post-its all over your <laughs> desk in your office and reorder them? How do you piece it together physically, or is it all on your computer screen? Oh, a couple of different
1: ways, actually, and I, I am a plotter. I have always been a plotter. I, I have to at least know where the book is going, and you know who did it and why they did it, <coughs> probably how they did it. What I don't usually know is how my detectives figure out what happened. Um, so I, I start out by making rough notes. I usually have to write a, a proposal for my publisher, which can sometimes be wild, and then I have to stick sort of to it. Um, so I, it, what I generally do is, you know, I, I come up with maybe half a dozen major storylines for a book, which can be, you know, in, in this case. You know, Duncan investigates the grenade, the death in St Pancras Station. Uh, Kit and Toby discover the litter of abandoned, you know, the mother cat and uh, and kittens abandoned in the shed. Uh, you know, they so they're not necess- All the storylines are not necessarily things that you would put big red stars on, but it, they're things that I know have to work in to move the plot along. And so I'll take you know 6 to 8 storylines and I'll think about where that storyline will start in the novel and where I want it to end up and then what has to happen in between to come to that logical conclusion and then and I actually do that on paper I I usually take pieces of printer paper together and use different colored pens and I've tried software I've tried you know different things for this you could do it with index cards or post-it notes or um But when I do that, I can sort of start to weave those incidents into a chronological storyline, you know, And because it's multiple viewpoints and, um, you know, and that doesn't... So from there I can kind of go to a written chapter scene outline. And the last three books I think I've written in Scrivener, which is a writing software program, and, I just
2: started using that, and
1: I just—I yeah, absolutely love it. it. I don't take advantage of everything that it does because it's very complicated, um, and I—I t- I don't tend to use it so much for the brainstorming part. Although it's wonderful, you can put unplaced scenes, notes, photographs, links, photographs, all kinds of stuff like that. But it has—it has a feature where, and you know, just shut me up if nobody wants to know this stuff. But uh, it has a feature on the left hand side where it you know because I write chapter scenes one two three four however many and um, and then on the right hand side it gives you a place where you can write a little synopsis of that scene so that when you you're you know you get into the book on the left hand side you can just mouse over those mm-hmm. scenes and the little synopsis will pop up which is fabulous because you're not flipping back through printed manuscript pages or going back Mm -hmm. through your Word doc thinking, now what happened at the end of that scene six chapters ago? Uh,
2: And you can also say, oh, it doesn't belong there. You can
1: move it up, and it's just there. You can move it around. And one of the things that Scrivener has done for me, which, you know, Knockwood again, is very helpful, is it kind of helps get over the blank page syndrome. Do you find that? Because, you know, you pull up one scene, and it's just like, oh, I can just write anything. And, you know, and then I can change it if I, right. it, it kind of gets over that having to put it into an, a formal formatted mm-hmm. document. Um, and then, so it helps. And we all, we need all the help we can get. Yeah. So, um, do we have time for one more? Does anybody else have another question? I know everybody's dripping, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> no. Um, well, we would both be more than happy to sign books for you, um, Kathy. Where are we gonna are we gonna do that? Are we gonna do that here? And thank you all so much for coming.